1: The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. From Slate the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. So why are so many state GOP leaders going after sitting governors, Republican governors, their governors, and not just... Governors, other elected officials. You know, it's one thing for Lynn Wood, lawyer, agitator, to live in his own Trump-infected reality. But Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer treated stalwart Trump supporter, but also actual rational adult Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, like he was, I don't know, Chairman Mao meets Tammany Hall. He sued him over and over, always to no avail. Then there was Arizona where on December 2nd, their governor, Doug Ducey, said this.
2: There are legal claims that are being challenged in court, and everybody on the ballot has certain access rights and remedies, and if they want to push that, they are able. Uh, Once those are adjudicated uh, and the process plays out, I will accept the results of the election. But Kelly Ward, Dr. Kelly Ward, chair of the Arizona GOP,
1: did not accept that. She wrote that day on Twitter, Arizona voters want their elected representatives to stand tall and defend the rule of law, not see them cower and surrender to the mob when the pressure is on. There are no election results until we the people have our day in court. You promised us that, governor. And then two days ago, because she did not accept the governor's accepting of the results, she and some fellow Republicans sort of cosplayed their way into an electoral college In the upside down, she cast her votes to no one for no reason, in a matter of no consequence, saying on December 14th, the true electors for the presidency met. Yes, the Republican electors, we gathered together. We took a vote for President Trump and for Mike Pence for president and vice president. Why are the Republican leaders warring with the Republican elected officials? There is a standard reason. And it goes something like this. Trump holds great sway among the party. So party officials are going to kowtow to his flights of fantasy. A Republican secretary of state might see his or her political ambitions hemmed in, depending on how raucous the fight is. But it does seem like a few of them are simply saying, sorry, I've got to follow the rules. And that's fair enough. But I have a theory that goes beyond that. And in fact, it goes beyond just thinking about 50 state Republican Party officials. And this theory actually explains maybe why people you know, among civilians you know, have become so caustic. So a few years ago, I would hear people routinely gasp in horror about the things Ann Coulter would say. How does she say that? How could she think that? They would ask treating Ann Coulter like an actual person and not the character she plays. But in all seriousness, I knew how she could think that. And it's because she's heavily incentivized to think that, and especially to say that. If Ann Coulter held her tongue or constrained her comments to somewhere within even the outer edges of acceptable discourse, quote unquote, she wouldn't be Ann Coulter. She would be much less well-known, much less well-paid, much less powerful, So she says outrageous things. You know, anyone could say true things. That, by the way, is, I believe, one annoyance that drives Trump's regard, disregard toward the mainstream media. He says, wait, they could get on camera just by saying truthful things and getting on camera. That's the most important currency ever invented. By saying the truth? How is that deserving of attention, he thinks. So anyway, Ann Coulter or Michelle Malkin or, you know, certain bomb throwery types on the left They're all incentivized to be unreasonable. And one part that other people have become much less reasonable, one reason, is that there is something like a horribleness treadmill. It takes more and more to be outrageous year after year. And if you find Breitbart outflanking you, you're cooked. But I also think there's something about the age in which we live. When we have all established little outposts, maybe self-perceived little fiefdoms of identity. And those create a bit of incentive to be horrible. And Coulter makes a lot of money doing it. It's not hard to see why each book to sell well has to be crazier, meaner, more outrageous than the last that's on brand. But average people with their Twitter avatars and Facebook accounts are incentivizing themselves not to say just normal factual things, Anyone could say the truthful normal thing. Facts aren't identity, beliefs are identity. And the more out there beliefs we have, the more bold the identity. So I do think these state chairmen are to some extent making a political calculation. But they're also considering their own self-perception, their own place in the ecosystem, and saying, Well, I've got to say this. They're probably not even having the conversation. It's not much soul searching. It's just how they're oriented and how they navigate throughout the world. This is me. This is what I have to say to continue being me. And then all their followers, all the state party members in Georgia and Arizona and Michigan, they're all made up of people who to some degree have been self-radicalized for whom their self-perceived incentives push them towards the outrageous as well this is who I am. This is what I say. If I stop saying it, I'll stop being who I am. I'll stop getting the rewards, maybe not monetary, but identity-wise, the rewards of being this public persona who says it on these social media platforms, or maybe even just among my friend group. So what do we get? We get state GOP leaders clashing with their elected officials because their elected officials were once their tribunes, their heroes, their representatives, truly. But upon getting elected, they get a little re-incentivized. And now their incentives are to do something other than deliver outrage. They're to govern or to have accomplishments or not simply to be outrageous just because that's who they are. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Trade advisor... Peter Navarro, he is the trade advisor. He's also the designated guy to spar with all manner of CNN anchor person about, well, anything that can be disputed and several things that can't. Navarro, not a dumb man, is, well, was a university professor, earned his PhD at Harvard, but is a bit of a wild card. For instance, I think maybe he just loves the drama. He ran for mayor or city council or Congress out of San Diego five times As a Democrat, in fact, he was a pretty lefty Democrat those times. But mostly he's just driven by a love of combat. And none of that is what I want to remember about Peter Navarro. What I want to remember is this.
0: The resident White House hawk, Peter Navarro, is leaning on his fictional alter ego, which he calls Ron Vera, to disseminate a case that tariffs are good and a phase one deal is bad.
1: What? His fictional alter ego? Is Peter Navarro Tony Stark? No, Peter Navarro is Ron Vera, an anagram of Navarro. Ron Vera is, according to New York Times, quote, a fictional character that Mr. Navarro created and cited as an expert more than a dozen times in five of his 13 books. His use of the fabricated source emerged in October, after a scholar reviewed all of Mr. Navarro's writings and discovered that one of his sources was imaginary. Navarro has called Ron Vera, quote, a whimsical device and pen name I've used throughout the years for opinions and purely entertainment value. It should be said that even though Navarro says, I don't see how anyone could think this wasn't fictional, that one of Navarro's co-authors admitted he had no idea that the Ron Vera cited by Navarro actually was Navarro, and the publisher of that book was also surprised to learn it and took steps to correct it. White House spokesperson Kylie McEnany had no comments, but Enya Mac said it was cool. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today... I spiel about vaccine side effects and our greatest disseminator of information about risk, trials, quality control, anaphylaxis. I, of course, speak of Joe Rogan. But first, maybe you've heard TV ratings for sports are down, and they are. Maybe you've heard it's because all the games have coincided, they were playing at once. That could be. Or maybe it's that people have political objections to the statements being made by athletes. It's not impossible or that the quality of play has decreased, or that empty stadia makes the game seem weird. Sure, 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 not ruling any of it out. But my next guest, Jane McManus, a sports writer turned academic, used another method to answer the question of why sports didn't and aren't enrapturing us as we are in lockdown with not much else to do. She polled people and asked them. And what she found actually makes a lot of sense. Jane McManus of the Maris College Center for Sports Communication up next.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: You know, the ratings of most sports competition down. Why? There are a few theories. One is that all the sports crashed into each other at the same time with the NBA finals coinciding with the baseball finals. And then you have football happening. Another idea, something about politics and people boycotting sports. I don't know about that one. A third idea is maybe just fatigue. Well, The Marist College Center for Sports Communication, along with their uh, partners there at Marist, the pollsters, decided to do some probing about what is turning people off about not just watching sports, but participating in sports. And Jane McManus, the longtime writer for ESPN, is now the director of the Center for Sports Communication. And she joins me to talk all manner of sport. Jane, hello. Thanks for coming on.
3: Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So polls tend to ask questions, but also seek to answer a question. What question were you looking to answer with your methods, both empirical and qualitative?
3: We did a poll earlier this year in October, because as you say in your opener, we were a bit confounded as to why sports ratings were down. And we wanted to find out whether or not this was true, that people actually were watching less sports, as as by reported by themselves, and then also what reasons they might give as to why sports ratings would be down, right? Why were they watching less? Uh, and that was kind of our starting point. And we did find that one of the significant reasons, and it broke down in certain ways by demographic, was the coronavirus, right? The coronavirus means that you cannot get together at a bar in a lot of places and watch A game in the same way you would have. You cannot go to a stadium uh, and watch in the same way that you would have. Your focus may be different depending on what you're doing. And so we wanted to find out how aware sports fans would be about that and what they would be thinking. So then we found out a lot of really interesting data there. And then that kind of led us to wanting to find out more in particular about just how aware of the coronavirus fans were and, and how it was impacting not only how they thought about sports, but also how they were living their lives.
1: Right. So you monitored, you polled, uh, based on this phenomenon, this observed phenomenon, that sports ratings were down. And you cited some examples of People aren't going to live events because of the coronavirus. People aren't gathering in bars. But of course, those two types of things wouldn't be measured by Nielsen ratings. I mean, there's a lot of debate among, you know, sports executives who have always said they don't capture all the people who go to a bar to watch the game together. That doesn't count as a Nielsen point. You, of course, factor that in, right?
3: Well, we asked viewers whether or not they were watching less. And 49% of people said they were watching less. Only 8% of people said they were watching more after the pandemic. So, I think what you have to say is, you know, there was this idea that when sports comes back, everybody's going to watch sports because nobody else has anything else going on. And that wasn't part of it. And it wasn't just ratings. It was also people describing their own behavior. And of course, you know, as we've seen with the election and other ways, uh, people aren't always accurately describing their behavior, but it is a good indicator and certainly a good starting point. And what we found was that when we asked people about their behavioral habits, it backed up what was happening with ratings. I think there's future polling to be done and I don't want to tip my hand too much. I think there's future polling to be done with talking to people, particularly younger people and ask them how they're consuming sports. And if watching an entire game front to back is how they do it. Because I think we're seeing some indicators that people you know, who are younger than, I'm, I'm 49, I'm about to be 50. People who are younger than I am don't consume sports in the same way that I do. And if that's the case, then that means that the advertising model is about to break down and we're going to see happening in sports broadcasting the same thing that we've seen happening in newspapers.
1: Right. And that predates the coronavirus pandemic, for sure.
3: 100%. I do think it is part of the whole dynamic, though. I think that is definitely something that you have to you have to incorporate that when you're talking about what is happening with ratings and with people watching sports.
1: But yeah, it is true. There was this speculation. Oh my God, people are so desperate for content. And when it didn't happen, I mean, it's like a Rorschach test. You, you rush in and you say, well, here's what I've always thought about the world. And here's how this behavior comports with what I thought about the world. And it was usually something political, or maybe it was something based on quality of play. Or, you know, what we do is, human beings is we anchor on the differences. So one difference is that ratings are down. And another difference is that especially the NBA was getting more explicitly political and saying Black Lives Matter and having a strike, a one-day strike over um, a shooting in Milwaukee. I mean, even if people weren't um, being bad faith actors, of course, it might make you wonder, well, that seems to be logical that it would come into play. We've never had this before. And look at how bad the ratings are. But you're finding that wasn't the case at all.
3: Well, what we found is that actually, if you looked at Uh, Republicans versus Democrats, that some of that stuff was actually true. The problem is that there aren't enough Republicans who are NBA fans to begin with to have them, say, vote with their feet and have that make a, a meaningful difference in what the NBA ratings are. And also, Republicans are watching more of other... Sports like baseball and the NFL, and those are also experiencing significant declines in viewership and popularity. So I think, you know, you could say, oh, look, in this one situation with the NBA, Republicans say they're watching less. But you actually find that they're a real small portion of that audience to begin with. And actually, Black respondents and NBA fans said they were watching more games for that very reason. So in some ways, it was kind of, I felt like when we got results on what people thought about whether or not they were watching because of the player protests and stances on social issues, that I felt was more of a Rorschach on what those respondents wanted you to think about how they felt about athlete social protest, as opposed to whether or not they were actually watching less or more.
1: Right. And because I think what's going on, and this was borne out by the majority of your findings, is that sports weren't giving people the same feeling, and usually a good feeling, but it wasn't addressing their emotional needs like it did before the pandemic. And so maybe it's just that some people were saying, I don't know, I'm just not into it. It must be because they're saying these things I don't agree with politically.
3: That is exactly right. And that's why I think we wanted to pursue more of what's happening. Now, I'm sure you anecdotally hear this a lot, and so do I, especially since we've started doing this research. But I'll hear two things. One, I hear people who are generally older talk about how they really needed baseball games to get back this summer, that it was really important to them, and they're watching more because they really need that distraction. But moreover, and More often, I'm hearing people tell me that they just don't have the interest in sports this year that they have in the past. And they can't really put their finger on why. And to me, that's interesting. And I want to know more about that. And so part of the reason that we decided to do this second round of polling, other than just you know cleaning up the whole idea of polling for the rest of the world now that it's gone through the ringer again, but it's so that we could kind of figure out, okay, well, can we quantify a little bit what it is that people are thinking about when it comes to sports now? And of course, the big thing that has happened, like, between last year's ratings, the ratings the year before, and this year is, of course, the pandemic. So we wanted to kind of get people's thinking a little bit more on what is happening with the pandemic because, you know, again, you you have these ideas and you want to see if they're borne out by what people are telling you. And one of the ideas is that it's hard to be distracted right now when you're confronted with reality in every aspect of your life in a different way. And we wanted to see if there was a way to find that out.
1: Right. So what did you find?
3: Well, we found that sports fans, when we asked them about different things and and how the coronavirus factored in, that they were hyper aware of exactly how sports is impacted by the virus. And so, for example, we asked if sports fans thought that athletes should be participating in indoor sports like basketball. And 56% of them said no. We asked if the government should be able to put restrictions on playing indoor team sports because of the coronavirus, and 58% said they should be able to. And we asked also, and this one I thought was really interesting, if people thought that playing indoor sports in their communities would lead to local spread, and 56% of respondents said they, they were. And when you look at the way that breaks down demographically, You find that the groups that are more likely to be affected by the coronavirus are more concerned about the impact that playing sports locally can have on a community. And this isn't necessarily thinking that if you have high school sports, that those high school athletes are going to become infected and die. It's more thinking if you have high school sports or you have recreational sports, that those players could spread the virus and then they take it to a restaurant to, you know, and then those waiters take it to their families. And then there's an elderly relative living in the household or that comes into contact with, or they visit convalescent housing setting. And then that's how it spreads. And then that's where you find people becoming sick and suffering these, these, you know, either long-term problems or dying. And I think that's what we saw was that, for example, baby boomers and people over 74, 61% and 60% said they were concerned, very concerned that playing sports could lead to community spread. You found that non-white respondents, 63% said they were very concerned. Women, 62% said they were very concerned. It breaks down politically, 73% For Democrats versus 30% of Republicans. So I think even just in the way that you break down the demographics and answering that question, you see that people, particularly people who could be really negatively affected, are really aware of exactly how this virus moves in a community and how sports can contribute to that.
1: So does the data show or do you have a theory about how that connects to what we were talking about before, the overall interest in watching professional players play sports? Because it's one thing if the uh, Waters meet Nimrods against the, I don't know, some other team from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan play each other. That's not exactly like the Pistons playing the Bulls, given the protocols in place.
3: Well, no, it's not exactly like it, but I think we also were able to get some interesting data when it comes to pro sports. For example, 42% said that college football should only be allowed with restrictions, and 31% said it shouldn't be allowed at all. There were people, majorities again, or pluralities again, saying that fans should only be allowed in stands in smaller quantities or not at all. And we also found that 49% of respondents said that there shouldn't be fans at all, at the Super Bowl. You know, I, I think of it this way. People are aware that there is a connection between the health of the community and playing of games, whether that's professional games or whether it's at a at a lower level. When you're watching these broadcasts and you're aware of the fact that there can be this negative community health impact, it's like, would you like to watch, you know, a bunch of people on the sidelines smoke for two hours? Like, how would you right. feel about that? Right. Knowing what you know about the public health connection. And I think, you know, when you're watching. A football game or a college basketball game, and you see all of these really crappy public health practices modeled on screen by a coach who's wearing a, a mask around his chin, and you know guys going up to each other's after games and and greeting each other in ways that were acceptable pre pandemic and aren't really acceptable for just regular people anymore. Uh, I think that sends a message that is discordant. Right, It is a note of discord in what is normally a distracting piece of entertainment in your life. And I think it's very difficult to watch it in a lighthearted manner knowing what you know.
1: Right, especially because if you want to compare it to other things that are other forms of entertainment that are an escape, like, I don't know, a cooking show or Emily in Paris, they're creating a fake world and they have a controlled set. So they never have to confront you with, like in sports, there is always a cut of a background and boom, it's all the stands are empty or you're watching the Ravens play the Steelers on a Tuesday night, Wednesday, what day of the week is this? Because there's some huge outbreak or half of your team. If you're a 49ers fan, you know, they have to they have to get their own housing miles away from the stadium. So as much as sports is an escape, the way it's presented, the empty fans with baseball schedule being so weird and truncated with the NBA being in a bubble, there is never 10 minutes of a sports broadcast that you can fully forget that it's sports during a pandemic. And that's how it's different from other escapist entertainments.
3: Exactly right. And I think also that you are aware of the convolutions that these broadcasters are going through in order to present a world as it once was rather than rather than a world as it is. And I think, you know, these games are being played and everybody knows it. They're being played because people need the broadcast money. Leagues need the broadcast money. Players need the money. College football is a cesspool of moral question marks, I think. And they're playing because those colleges need the money you know, you hear these broadcasters bending themselves into pretzels to say the NFL's done a great job and hasn't canceled any games. And you're like, yeah, I'm watching on a Wednesday afternoon. Maybe they should have canceled this one. You know, mm-hmm. Des Bryant's giving high fives before a game and then he ends up testing positive. Uh, they don't cancel the game. And then he ends up testing negative, which I think just goes <sighs> to show you what a convoluted situation that people are, are, yeah. are having as a backdrop for these games. It is no longer an escape. And it, I think it does remind you of how weird things are. Like maybe you would actually like to attend a game and you're hearing fans in the stands for your average NFL game, but then they show a shot that inadvertently, right? Because all of these broadcasters are trying not to show you what the stands look like. And so you inadvertently see a peak of all of the empty seats. And it's a reminder, again, that these players are playing in a pandemic and that they're piping in fake crowd noise from previous years to fool you into thinking everybody is normal. And it's just, I think it's jarring.
1: So you came out with this really excellent statement. Um, was it was it upon reflection after your first set of polling about sports being the reward for a functional society?
3: I said that back in March. Um, uh-huh. And I wrote a column about it in April. And it's because I, I did feel like we have sports because we have so much working properly in our society, right? We can we can be around each other without worrying about things. We have planes that can get players and fans to games. We have enough discretionary income to be able to buy tickets and food. We have trucks that can get that food to stadiums. Uh, you know, we have a broadcasting system where broadcasters can interact with people and interview people. Like, all of these things have to go right for us to kind of get to the top of the Maslow's hierarchy of entertainment needs that is professional sports in a modern democracy. And it has all fallen apart. We haven't gotten our functioning society back, but boy, are we going to make sure that sports are played. And Mm. honestly, I do, you know, in some ways, some leagues have been, you know, tried to be really responsible about that. I think the WNBA and the NBA uh, certainly tried not to be a danger to local communities by playing in a bubble, National Women's Soccer League. Also, they were kind of the first to do it. They played in Utah, and they tried to really limit the number of people who were in that bubble. We've seen other sports be incredibly irresponsible. and In college sports, I think college football is at the top of that list. Sports for me have always been, you know, from a playing standpoint, I I love playing sports and played a lot growing up. They've always kind of been about the best of what society has to offer in terms of teamwork and opportunities to try on, you know, leadership roles and... You know, really overcoming things that are, you know, you know, I think everybody has had this, or many people have had this experience when when you're playing. This idea that you can't do something, you're physically incapable, you, you don't want to, you're tired or whatever. And then getting to a point where you push through that and are able to do something and feel proud of that. and I, And so in some ways, I think sports really are such a great way for us to understand who we are And I just feel like professional sports and college sports in the pandemic have shown us the worst of what sports have to offer, which is putting league above community, completely divorcing what's good for the league from what is good for the community. I think back to whether or not sports could, you know, you could have had all of the major pro leagues get together in March and April and say, we're wearing masks, we're social distancing, you know, clean up your stuff make sure you're six feet apart. If they'd put out that public health message, if they've gotten involved in that public health message, how impactful that can be. And instead, they were calling you know, Dr. Fauci, asking him for his time so that they could figure out how to get their particular sport Back in play. It's contrary to the idea of community and teamwork in a big picture sense. And so that's been disappointing for me.
1: Right. Because if sports are the reward, reward of a functional society, we won't use them as a punishment. That's not our purpose. That's not why sports are used to beat ourselves up.
3: Right. Exactly. Things I think things will be a distraction again because it will be that we are living lives the way that we had. I'm almost more concerned with the idea that sports leagues didn't act in a way that was more responsible uh, and responsive to public health. Like for example, Rody Gobert test positive in the NBA in March, and they shut down the league because they realize what it means. I don't think that it. I think there is no number of positive cases that will force the 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 NFL or college football to shut down. No number, they will play through everything with, you know, student athletes collapsing on a court who test positive earlier, with so little known about the long-term repercussions of this disease, and there, there are no breaks anymore on this thing. You know, to me, that's that's hard. That's hard to live with. And I think, actually, I'm probably not alone in that. And I think, you know, that's kind of why when I looked at the data and I saw that so many people were aware of how sports intersect with the virus, it made sense to me.
1: Jane McManus is the director of the Maris College Center for Sports Communication. And now, something of a pollster. Thank you, Jane.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciated being on and appreciated the discussion as always.
1: And now the spiel. A patient in Alaska had an allergic reaction from taking the Pfizer vaccine. We don't know how severely the person was affected. We don't know what allergies the person may have had beforehand. We do know this happens, and we do know it shouldn't be ignored. We need to monitor and follow up. And I do think the media will do everything it can to put this in proper context, which used to mean a lot, and now it means a little. And not because the media is fractured, and not because disinformation is easy, and not just because there are plenty of active hucksters and loons who are knowingly lying and doing it successfully, and they have huge forums to do so to denigrate vaccines in general. I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about a powerful force who sees himself as a benevolent force, and I won't won't gainsay him that self-conception. His name is Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's podcast, now on Spotify, get, by some plausible estimates, 11 million listens an episode. And his power isn't just his reach. It's that his reach is comprised of an audience that is largely not taking in other bits of news information. So the sentiments and facts expressed maybe go a lot further than other facts that might be existing within a news context that are hitting the ears of an audience who is simultaneously imbibing tons of other news information. The Rogan audience isn't like that. Rogan's been criticized, sometimes fairly, sometimes not, for platforming, hot new word, people who are conspiracy folk. I don't care who Joe Rogan talks to. I would never have Alex Jones on my show. But, you know, Joe Rogan does it with the intention, he says, of being a curious person who seeks out information What's a better way to seek out information than to have the purveyors have that information sit across from you and explain themselves? Okay, he's also, oh, is he a conspiracy theorist? Not like Alex Jones is, I will say. Rogan frequently compares his show to traditional journalism. He says his show is better because he connects to the audience more meaningfully. And he says he's more truthful and more accurate than the mainstream media because, I don't know, sometimes his explanations are a monetary explanation Sometimes they're motivated by, I don't know, some, some messaging. Anyway, this is an assertion of his that you can trust the Joe Rogan podcast because you will hear lengthy conversations where they get at the truth. I want to play for you a section of the show, recent episode. I do listen to Rogan sometimes. When there is a guest that I'm interested in, I listen. When there's a guest I'm going to interview because I like to do my research. So he was talking to Matt Iglesias, who was on The Gist yesterday and Monday, and in that conversation Rogan said this. I like vaccines.
2: I, I, I mean, am not vaccinated now. Um, the problem that a lot of people have is that this was fast tracked and they get nervous about They do. They do. Possible potential side effects and we don't know what those are going to be and then there's a lot of people that are very uncomfortable with the idea of getting very sick after they take the vaccine which seems to happen with 80% of the people that take it. And so they're concerned about that. Wait, 80% of people who are taking this vaccine? Yes. That's not what I heard. Well, that's what Bill Gates has said. Bill Gates. Yeah. Like Iglesias, I
1: was surprised that Bill Gates said that. And so what happened next was Rogan talking through with his producer, and this is how the show works. They don't edit it. It goes on. If he has some questions and saying, bring up some tape, we all hear that. So he talks through with his producer. Hey, what was the Gates quote? No, it wasn't this quote. How do we access the Gates quote? Oh my gosh. Was the Gates quote censored? Was the Gates quote taken down? No, it wasn't. Oh, here was the Gates quote. I think it was on NBC. And then they finally find the quote. Got to play that clip.
0: After the second dose, at least 80% of participants experienced a systemic side effect, ranging from severe chills to fevers. So are these vaccines safe?
2: Well, the, uh, the FDA not being pressured will look hard at that. The FDA is the gold standard of regulators, uh, and their current guidance on this if they stick with that is is very very appropriate, uh, and you know the, it, the 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 side effects were not super severe. That is, it didn't cause permanent health problems for uh, the things there. They you know Moderna did have to go with a fairly high dose, and so uh, you know to get the antibodies. Some of the other vaccines uh, are going able to go with lower doses to get. Uh, responses that are are pretty high, including the the J&J and the Pfizer. And so there's a lot of characteristics of these vaccines. Um, It's great that we have multiple of them uh, that are going out there. And yes, I think, you know, the data better than than I do, but the bill
0: bill, the the data show that everybody with a high dose had a, a side effect.
2: Yeah, but some of that is is not dramatic where, you know, it's just you know, super painful. But yes, we need to make sure there's not severe side effects. The FDA, uh, I, I, I think, will do a good job of that uh, despite the pressure.
1: OK, so a clip that was said to be Bill Gates saying on NBC that 80% of the people who took the vaccine got very sick was actually Bill Gates on CBS pretty much rebutting anchor Nora O'Donnell's assertion that 80% of the people who took it had a systemic side effect. And if Matt Iglesias hadn't said, wait, I don't think Bill said that, I guess Joe Rogan's statement would have just gone out there. And 11 million people might think, oh, Bill Gates is saying you're going to get violently ill after you take the vaccine. (sighs) Why I bring this up is that it's important. It shows what information, true information is up against If I came onto this show, this show right here, The Gist, and started giving advice about how to properly execute a roundhouse kick or how to train for MMA, even if I was well intentioned and maybe had um, an interesting way of expressing my feelings and opinions about training for MMA, a guy like Joe Rogan would be right to say, you know, you don't exactly know what you're talking about. You're not getting it right. What you're doing could be dangerous. Joe Rogan is sure, fine, a good intentioned person who's just not trained to disseminate information, but he does so. There's no law against it. I wish there would be a realization even within just the titular host of the show that sometimes he gets it wrong because in this environment, he is one of the more important voices out there. And what I'm saying is that the side effects could be serious. And systemic. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly believes ukuleles are the reward for a twee society. Daniel Schrader believes Pabst Blue Ribbon beer is the reward for a so ironic they're drinking swills society. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, believes the trend of waiters who would say "no worries" is the reward for an indulgent society the gist we believe the leaked audio of tom cruise screaming some fairly sound social distancing advice is the reward for a not sciency not logical but also not too scientological society oopuru de puru and thanks for listening